You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at Princeton University, where she also serves as the director of the Industrial Relations Section. She is also the co-director of the Development of the American Economy Program at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Her research lies at the intersection between economic history and labor economics. And her latest book is titled Streets of Gold, America's Untold Story of Immigrant Success. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Leah Boston. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So firstly, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about your background and how you got into studying the history and economics of immigration. Uh, Well, I'm an economic historian, so I'm most interested in some of the major changes that have shaped the American economy today. Um, So some of my earlier work was on Black migration from the rural South, um, from from an agricultural region up to northern and western cities um, to engage in factory jobs, industrialization. Um, And uh, that was one of the largest demographic events in U.S. history. And I would say that the ebbs and flows of immigration to the U.S. from the rest of the world is another major change. And so I sort of turned my attention uh, to studying um, immigration primarily from Europe um, around 100 years ago. Uh, the group of people that we think of as like the Ellis Island generation who disembarked in New York after seeing the Statue of Liberty um, and and comparing those immigrants to uh, from 100 years ago to immigrants today. Okay, so before we start um, discussing some of the book's conclusions and the myths it dispels, I wanted to start by understanding the process you went through in collecting such a large number of data points across such a long time span. So as I understand it, um, the book presents the first ever big data account of immigration following over 150 years of immigration flows. So can you tell us a bit about the process of finding, sorting, and analyzing this data, um, especially given how old much of it is? Well, that's right. It's especially hard to uh, try to come up with information about immigrants in the workforce 100 years ago. Um, And so I think what's really new and special about the research that went into the book um, is that um, we're providing the first really big data about um, that time period. Um, And so in order to do that, um, my co-author and I, and my co-author is is Ron Abramitsky, who's at Stanford, um, we were brainstorming over 10 years ago now, how we might be able to find information about uh, these various immigrant groups. And at the time, Ancestry.com was really just starting to become popular, uh, I guess, part of the original dot-com craze. And the idea of Ancestry was that you can go and research your own family members. So you can type into the search bar the name of your uh, grandfather, and you might be able to pop up um, his Uh, census information when he was living at home with his own parents. You could pop up his World War II draft card or his marriage records, that sort of thing. And the idea was that you really should be able to follow people cradle to grave through uh, the different uh, data records and traces that they've left. 
Um, and so we started to look up some uh, some immigrants that way, really in uh, a very kind of point and click fashion. Um, and we found that we were able to follow a number of, of immigrant families um, from when they first arrived in the country uh, through to when they had kids and then even when their kids um, got grew up and, and, and moved out. Um, but we wanted to be able to do that really wholesale. And for Ancestry, you know, it's really, a, it's like a retail operation. You can look up one person at a time. Um, and originally, we started to uh, automate those searches on Ancestry.com. So we're sort of doing exactly what you would do if you were looking up your own grandparents, but, but really trying to look up as many people as possible. Um, and eventually, my co-author got a, a cease and desist call from the Ancestry lawyer, um, where, you know, apparently... Um, he said on the call, well, it seems like you have a really big family because you're looking up, you know, thousands of records here. And and, and I think that um, the Ancestry Corporation thought we were trying to repackage their own data and sell it, you know, on a different website. And when they found out that we were just academics, um, they ended up, you know, allowing us to continue our project. Um, but not only that, they now have uh, research partnerships with us and with a number of other academics around the country so that we have access to some of their underlying data records. Um, the, the data you would look up and it would pop up information about one person. We actually have um, access to the underlying database. Um, so we're able to uh, then follow people over time. Um, and you know, once we have the data, it's not as simple as that, because how do you know who's who? Um, in one census period, like in 1900, you see a family, an immigrant family living um, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania or something, um, working um, in steel manufacturing. Um, how do you know that it, in 1910, 10 years later, if you're looking at a, a family with um, similar information, how do you know it's the same, the same folks? And so we had to come up with uh, approaches to try to link people over time. And we've developed some computer algorithms to use the information that's at hand to try to figure out who's who. It's not as good as if we really had you know, social security numbers or other uh, sort of clear um, identifying uh, numbers, but um, we've really done as best we can to try to follow everyone. And so that means immigrants, of course, but also um, US born families as well for comparison. Okay, um, so next I wanted to talk a bit about some of the common immigration myths this book debunks, starting with um, the one about how um, we are in a in the midst of a flood of immigration. Um, so as you know, the share of foreign-born people in the United States has been growing quite steeply um, in recent years, yet you argue that this is neither unprecedented nor excessive. Um, so can you tell us a bit about this myth, why it's so prevalent, and ultimately why it's incorrect? So... This is really the easiest myth uh, to debunk data-wise. It doesn't require doing a lot of special digging, um, but I think it's really important to kind of clear the decks by starting here. Um, so we now have 45 million immigrants in the United States, meaning people who were born in another country and now live here. Um, and that is the largest number of immigrants that we've ever had. Um, in our nation's history, 45 million. But we also have the largest population that we've ever had. Um, and so as a share of the population, um, immigrants make up around uh, 14% um, of the people living in the country. And that means one in every seven persons. Um, that may sound like a lot, um, but uh, it's actually in no way unprecedented. If you go back 100 years, um, starting uh, in 
the 1870s and going forward to 1920, uh, the share of the population that's foreign born was also 14%. And not only for one uh, year or one census period, but for 50 years. And so, you know, I really say check back with me in 50 years. If we still have uh, 14% of the population foreign born, then we can say we're in another age of mass migration um, uh, like we had been uh, at the turn of uh, the 20th century. Um, but uh, in work that other economists have done with uh, surveys, you know, asking the general American uh, population, how many immigrants do you think we have? Um, what share of the population do you think are made up of the foreign born? Uh, people tend to overestimate um, how many immigrants are here, um, usually sort of a factor of two. So if, if it's 14, 15% of the population is truly foreign born, people tend to assume, oh, it's probably around 30% of the population. Um, and that's not unique to the United States. Um, this survey was also done in other um, countries, particularly in Europe, and uh, people tend to overestimate the number of immigrants um, there as well. And I think that um, probably, um, you know, immigrants can become quite salient uh, if certain political parties are saying, well, you know, we have too many immigrants, um, our flow is too big, we have too many immigrant workers or too many immigrants committing crimes or that sort of thing, um, then the numbers can seem large because you'll often hear about immigration in the news. And then you'll sort of assume that there are more immigrants than there, there truly are. Okay. Um, so the next myth you discuss uh, regards the differences between the perceptions of economic mobility for the Ellis Island generation of immigrants in the late 19th and 20th century, um, as opposed to modern immigrants. So whilst the Ellis Island generation came mainly from Europe, um, current immigrants are much more diverse with most immigrants coming from Asia and Latin America. Um, so the Ellis Island era immigration stories are often romanticized as an era of unparalleled mobility where anyone can make it in America, which doesn't seem to be the same perception of immigrants today. However, as you point out, the data regarding mobility may not necessarily reflect either of these conclusions. So can you please tell us a bit more about this myth and, and how it doesn't hold up? Right. So this is really a, a myth about the past. We have a nostalgic view about immigrants who arrived from Europe 100 years ago. Um, and one thing that I find very interesting about this is that while we're living in a very polarized time and there's you very rarely uh, agreement across the political spectrum on anything, um, we see that there was a strong agreement about this historical idea, the idea that immigrants 100 years ago um, were successful, that they were good for the country, good for the economy, and that they themselves um, moved up the ladder quickly. Um, so you can hear um, politicians across the spectrum making this claim. Um, and so we wanted to start by uh, assessing the, uh, this nostalgic view in the data um, this is something that myself growing up in the United States, I sort of had grown up with that myth. Um, so that's the way that uh, the immigration story is often taught in high school. Um, so we uh, turned to the data on the Ellis Island period, and we found that the myth was wrong in two different ways. So if you think about the myth as being rags to riches, the idea is you start out poor and by the end of your life, you end up doing pretty well. And it turned out that the first part of the myth is wrong. Um, many immigrants during the Ellis Island period actually started out doing quite well. Um, they never really arrived in rags. Uh, and so if you break the countries of Europe down, um, there are around 15, 16 countries that were sending immigrants to the United States. Um, and a number of them were actually either 
richer than the U.S. in terms of GDP per capita, or they were neck and neck with the U.S. And so these are countries like you know, England and Scotland, um, but also France and Germany, basically all of the Western European countries. Um, and immigrants from those areas arrived in the U.S. and they already earned more uh, than the U.S. born. Um, and there are certainly some countries where that's true today. Um, again, immigrants from Germany or from Japan, um, um, even immigrants uh, from poorer countries like India, because uh, those immigrants today tend to be from the more educated groups. Um, but it was more so true in the past that there were a set of immigrants um, that arrived and they were already out earning uh, the U.S. born. They arrived with skills and jobs, um, uh, education, and so they were able to really um, already uh, hit the ground running, so to speak. Um, the other part of the myth is, okay, what about those people who did arrive poor? Um, did they catch up to the U.S. born or even surpass the U.S. born in earnings over their career? Um, and there we find that there's some um, upward mobility, but it's pretty slow. Um, so if you're taking um, immigrants from um, Italy or um, from Scandinavia, which was at the time very poor, or Portugal, um, and you see that immigrants from those countries are earning less than the U.S. born when they first arrive, and then you follow them 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later, how well are they doing um, compared to other workers the same age? They've caught up to some extent, but not nearly erasing um, the full earnings gap. And that really waits until the second generation. So even in this period 100 years ago that people hold up as saying, geez, these immigrants um, were highly successful, it really was not the immigrant generation themselves. It was more the kids of immigrants um, that were achieving those levels of success. And that's, that story is quite similar today. Okay, um, so now the, the third myth that you discuss is how immigrant families that do not arrive as high-skilled workers or already wealthy, but rather as part of the working poor get stuck in a generational cycle of poverty as a permanent underclass. So I think from a purely intuitive standpoint, it makes sense why this myth would be prevalent, um, because it's easy to think that because first-gen um, immigrant parents had low incomes, that they wouldn't be able to provide their children with a good education or a lot of the resources that might give them a safety net or an advantage in climbing the socioeconomic ladder and that the cycle will perpetuate from generation to generation. Um, so can you tell us a bit about this permanent underclass myth and, and why, why it doesn't seem to be true? Well, the first thing to know is that immigrants today do come from a much wider range of countries uh, than immigrants in the past. Um, like you mentioned, they come from um, all sorts of countries in Latin America and Asia. Um, and immigrants today tend to come from countries that are far poorer relative to the United States uh, than immigrants in the past. And so when immigrant parents arrive, um, they do on average earn substantially less than the U.S. foreign workers, around 30% less. And so exactly like you're saying, um, you know, it seems reasonable uh, to suspect that it might take time for their kids to catch up. Um, and there's two ways of seeing that this myth is incorrect in the data. The first is just really looking at unconstrained averages, like just taking a look at um, the typical earnings of immigrant parents and the typical earnings of, of the kids of immigrants, country by country. And you see that when you're looking at the earnings of immigrant parents, indeed, um, as I just mentioned, immigrant parents are earning a lot less than the U.S. born for many sending countries. But when you look at the kids of those immigrants, 
they're either completely caught up to the kids of the U.S. born or in some cases, maybe earning a little bit less, but they've made substantial progress relative to their parents. So that's already telling you quite a lot. Um, and then the second way of looking at the data is to say, okay, let's compare apples to apples because we know that the immigrant families are on average going to be poorer. So let's find a similar U.S. born family. Um, and we take a look at all sorts of different um, parts of the income distribution. Think about people who are earning below average. Um, and then we can look at people who are at the 20th percentile or the 25th or the 30th. Um, regardless of what percentile we choose to look at, we find that the children of immigrant parents um, are achieving higher income levels than the children of U.S.-born families who were raised at the same income level during childhood. Um, so this is a way of sort of taking out of the equation the fact that uh, immigrant families tend to be poorer on average and say, let's try to, you know, um, uh, find groups that are as comparable as possible. And when we do that, we see that the children of immigrant families are doing exceptionally well, and they're moving up uh, the economic ladder faster than the children of U.S.-born families. Um, we then try to drill down a little bit on why this is the case. Um, and uh, I think, you know, there's a number of factors that um, immediately spring to mind when we you know, talk to friends and family. They say, well, okay, that, that pattern makes sense because immigrant parents care more about education. They're harder working. They're more diligent. Um, they have a better work ethic, that sort of thing. And that could be true, but there's something that we hit on, hit on in the data that I think um, is really new, you know, is not something that was part of um, uh, the typical hypotheses that came to people's mind. And that is that immigrants choose where to live in the U.S. Um, and when they do so, they end up choosing to locate in more dynamic labor markets. Um, and those are areas that provide better opportunities for their children. Um, but not only their, their children, in fact, any family that's raising their kid in uh, a similar set of areas uh, tends to have pretty good upward mobility. Um, so in the past, what this meant was that immigrant families really avoided moving to the U.S. South, which at the time was very agricultural, um, had a lot of cotton growing, and was not a place of high upward mobility really for anyone, um, either white families or black families. And immigrants avoided moving to the South. Instead, they were moving to Northern cities. Um, and when they did move to the North, they didn't tend to move to farm areas. Instead, they were moving to urban areas. And so we see similar patterns today, but the locations are a bit different. Um, so now immigrants are locating in big coastal cities, um, in places um, where there are a lot of job opportunities in finance or tech or education, health, that sort of thing. Um, and those provide opportunities for their kids. Okay, so I think then um, that, that goes quite a long way towards dispelling sort of the um, decreasing social mobility um, in America myth as, as a whole. Um, I, I think it, it shows that if, immigrants um, or children of immigrants um, who were raised as part of the working poor um, without any connections to the United States or, or any of that um, can by and large make it to the middle class. Um, then sort of the rest of the, the population really has no excuse to claim um, structural factors that keep them down as opposed to, um, you know, purely 
um, factors within their own control, like where they choose to live. So, so do you think that that um, that conclusion has broader ramifications for for the rest of the population? Well, I do think you can turn the question around and rather than ask, why are the children of immigrants doing so well? You can ask, why are the children of U.S. born families uh, doing poorly? Um, and one factor that we want to take off the table right away um, is comparisons across race. And so when we're talking about U.S. born families, we're just looking at the children of white parents. Um, and even in that case, we're seeing that the children of immigrants are achieving more upward mobility. Um, so to turn the question around, why are the children of U.S.-born white parents not doing as well? Um, the geographic mobility factor that I just described is a large part of the story. Um, and we've seen uh, in the past 20, 25 years that the rate of mobility across states has been declining. Um, and uh, there are questions about why um, people who are born into and raising their kids in states that don't offer as many opportunities are more hesitant to move out um, and to move to new locations or cities um, that might provide opportunities for upward mobility. Um, in fact, when we focus in on the U.S.-born families who have done that, so that, you know, think of them as internal migrants, right? Maybe you're born um, in in and raise your kids in Kentucky, and then you choose to take your kids with you and move um, to Illinois. Um, so that would be an internal migrant. Um, in fact, those uh, children are doing almost as well as the children of international immigrants. And so uh, the question really becomes, why are people um, more hesitant these days to move. Um, and I think the first thing that jumps to mind is, well, of course, you're born into a location, your family is there, you have roots and cultural connections, your friends, you went to high school there. So it's going to be a bit harder to dislodge you from that place um, just because of um, opportunities that might exist a, a thousand miles away. Um, whereas, you know, immigrants have already revealed themselves as being willing to move by, in fact, leaving their home country, um, which is an enormous step. Um, they've already um, indicated to us that they are the type of person who's willing to move for opportunity. Um, and so, you know, you may say, well, of course, it's natural uh, that someone who's born into a particular location um, would choose to stay there uh, because of family connections. But that doesn't quite explain why the rate of mobility has been declining lately, the rate of geographic mobility, um, just to be clear. Um, from 1990 until today. Um, surely there were strong family connections in 1990 as well. Um, and so there's something going on that makes um, Americans less willing to be geographically mobile. Um, and I think economists are working on that question. They haven't quite nailed uh, the factors. Um, some of it may have to do with uh, variation in housing cost. Um, there are locations where you can earn a lot more, um, but then a lot of those extra earnings just get eaten up in higher rents or higher housing prices. Um, so that might be um, what's different about, uh, you know, 2022 relative uh, to 1990. Um, but I do think that that's a really important, um, you know, area for us to continue to think about and work on um, because, uh, you know, there's there's really like what, what our work teaches me is that, there, that there's nothing really um, special about immigrants in terms of a unique culture or a unique willingness to work hard. Um, but there is something about uh, the geographic locations that immigrants choose. And those um, are places that other people uh, could choose too. Okay. So the final myth you talk about um, addresses the zero sum game idea. 
that immigrant successes must be coming at the expense of the native born population. Again, this makes sense from an intuitive standpoint. So if you think about the labor market in isolation, then more workers must mean a decrease in the wage rate and increased competition for jobs um, means that people might find themselves outcompeted. Um, however, what's not nearly as intuitive is realizing that immigrants don't just affect one side of the equation. And when looked at as a whole, the story can end up um, being quite different. So uh, can you tell us um, why the U.S. economy or labor market doesn't actually function as a zero sum game like many people might assume and why immigrant success isn't something that the, the native born population should be scared of? Well, there are a number of factors that go beyond that simple zero-sum story. Um, I mean, first of all, um, in the simplest model, we tend to think of immigrants only as workers. Um, and so when a new immigrant arrives, there's more workers um, around for maybe the same number of jobs initially. Uh, and so the wage rate you know, would have to fall in that simple case. But immigrants are not only workers, they're also consumers. Um, once they arrive, they need um, a house to live in. So someone has to build a house for them. Their kids go to school. So someone has to become a teacher. So very quickly, there are more jobs around than had existed before. Um, and, you know, you can think about that as immigrants are both shifting the supply of labor, but also the demand for labor at the same time. Um, and immigrants are also arriving these days with a very different set of skills uh, than uh, the U.S. born have. Um, they tend to arrive on both sides of the skill spectrum, either very high skilled um, people who hold PhDs or are studying here to get a PhD and eventually work in science or engineering or tech. Um, or um, on the other end, uh, immigrants arrive from countries where it's hard to even get an opportunity to go to high school. Um, so we might call them in the data, oh, these are high school dropouts. Well, in some cases, immigrants are actually people who never even had the chance to go to ninth grade. Um, and so here are um, a set of workers who um, are bringing skills to work in agriculture, construction, landscaping, child care, elder care restaurant work and that sort of thing. And U.S.-born workers tend to be in the middle of the skill distribution. Um, and so in that way, um, economists sometimes call that um, immigrants complementing um, U.S.-born workers rather than substituting for them. And so for these various factors, we start to think, well, maybe our predictions should be a little bit more complex you know, than just assuming that um, when immigrants arrive, the U.S.-born workers will lose out. Um, and so um, in the book, we talk about a number of different studies, some work that we've done ourselves and some work that other economists have done to try to look in the data to see, well, what happens when immigrants come um, in greater number or when they come um, in, in fewer numbers? And it's tough. It's not an easy uh, empirical exercise because ideally what you'd like to do is sort of uh, duplicate America. So now you have two countries, they look identical to each other, and run an experiment where one country restricts immigration and the other one does not, and then see what happens to earnings. But of course, we never have the opportunity to really run an experiment like that. And so instead, we have to be creative and think, what are ways that we can create um, studies that approximate that idea? Um, and so we've um, really highlighted studies that have focused on um, moments when the U.S. engages in policy changes, um, you know, when they tr either uh, open up immigration or shut immigration down. And we've had a lot of um, 
a sort of instability in our immigration system over the past 150 years. And so that does give some opportunities uh, for us or for other economists to look at this question. Um, and I think what was really surprising to economists 20, 25 years ago was, gee, it's hard to actually find evidence of immigrants uh, taking jobs away from the U.S. born or lowering the wages of the U.S. born, um, given the simple model, that seems very surprising. But to, given the more complicated models, um, it actually makes a lot of sense. Okay. And finally, I wanted to ask you about the policy side of the debate. Um, so equipped with all of your extensive data and findings, um, if you had complete executive control over all U.S. immigration policy, um, what specifically would you change and what would you keep the same? Well, um, to some extent, I think of our, our book as, as being um, a plea to keep the status quo. Um, so when we say that um, that immigrants have done quite well in um, moving up the economic ladder, it might take a generation, doesn't happen right away. Um, that's at the current levels of immigrant inflows. It doesn't really tell us what would happen um, if we suddenly you know, quadrupled immigration um, or if we suddenly cut immigration substantially. Um, and the same thing goes with understanding how immigrants um, affect uh, the U.S. born. Um, at the current levels, um, it seems like there, there is not much cost uh, uh, to the U.S. born uh, from immigrant success. And if anything, there seem to be some gains. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the same thing would be true, um, you know, if we open the border. So um, we we really um, see the book as, as saying um, we should be wary of attempts to, you know, substantially slash immigration, um, as we saw uh, in the 2017 Raise Act, um, which did not go through, but it was proposed by the Trump administration. Um, so um, we also are wary of the idea of moving to a Canadian point system um, where we try to pick and choose uh, the best immigrants based on who speaks English currently or who has uh, currently has a PhD, that sort of thing. Um, because we think that there's strong evidence that immigrants um, change as they um, spend time in the country. They might not know English right away, but within uh, 10 years, they, they learn English quite well. Um, they themselves might not have uh, a strong educational background, but by the time you get to the kids' generation, um, then uh, the children of immigrants do. Um, and so um, we uh, would certainly be open to the idea of um, ex expanding the number of legal slots for entry um, to some degree. And so, you know, really making marginal changes like that um, make a lot of sense to us. Um, there was a moment when, for example, um, we increased the number of H-1B visa slots, which were uh, slots for um, skilled uh, tech workers. And then um, we went back to a, our lower and smaller uh, quota on H-1B. So, so that makes would make a lot of sense to pump up the number of H-1B visas as well. Um, we also say in the book that um, there's a strong case to be made for enshrining DACA um, into legislation rather than acting through executive action um, to uh, provide a pathway to citizenship for uh, children who arrived in the U.S. Um, undocumented and without papers, uh, because a caveat to all of these, you know, uh, very um, hopeful um, and optimistic uh, elements to our findings um, that the children of immigrants are doing quite well um, is that children who themselves arrive without papers and documentation find their pathway to upward mobility stymied. Um, once they are set to graduate from high school, they have a hard time finding work in the formal sector and they have a hard time accessing a college education. So they really do get stuck. And there's real, no reason why we would want to create 
um, what might become a permanent underclass when we see that when left um, to uh, exploit the opportunities that are available, the children of immigrants do quite well. Um, and so that seems like shooting ourselves in the foot um, and we can uh, do much better um, by those children, but also uh, for our economy and, and for our society. Um, so uh, we have um, a few suggestions along those lines, uh, but really what I see as the final message of the book um, is the optimism and the hope um, that, in fact, there is a strong silent majority in favor of immigration um, in the U.S. And we see that from public opinion polls. Um, and the most recent Gallup poll uh, suggests that 75% of Americans um, are strongly in support of immigration. Um, but we also see that uh, from um, a very long run time series that we put together of speeches about immigration on the floor of Congress. Um, Never before in our history, actually, going all the way back to 1880, has the typical speech about immigration been so positive. Um, now, it's also true that those speeches are quite polarized by political party. Um, so the positive speeches tend to be given by Democrats and the negative speeches tend to be given by Republicans these days. Um, but we think that there is strong prospect for bipartisan reform, um, given how popular, in fact, immigration is with the American public. Well, those are all the questions um, I have for you today. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the show. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.